Okay, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another podcast by your host, Joe Oregani. It's truthchat.fun. That is my website, www.truthchat.fun. If you want to leave me any messages, any voicemails, any suggestions, any comments, anybody who wants to be a guest is welcome to do. Today is a very special one for me. I don't want to go over too long. It's my 40th year being clean and sober. And that's quite an accomplishment. But I want to talk about that. But first, I want to do some quick housekeeping here. It seems that uh, what I want to say is this. First of all, I want to talk about something that's been bugging me for a while. It's the Colonial Pen Life Insurance, $9.95 a day. If you look into that, which I did before I got more life insurance, at the end of the term policy, you were going to get, I think it was $700 or $900. What are you going to do with nine hundred dollars? What do you pay for the coffin lid? Be lucky you get in a funeral parlor. So anyway, that's just a total ripoff. They want you to more and more. So be careful if you're getting that. Check it out. Do yourself a favor. Now it's mostly going in for my surgery. I originally thought it was Wednesday, but there's a god up above. I'm going in Tuesday. I have to be at the hospital at eight forty-five. Surgery scheduled for eleven forty-five. And if you want to know how I'm doing, you can. Uh, guarantee I'll still be around to haunt people no matter which way this goes my brother asked me if I was nervous going to the hospital I'm never nervous going to the hospital because I lived a pretty damn good life which I'll explain shortly in a moment 40 years of being clean it's over to me is unbelievable I don't know when it's living yet but some more house cleaving if you want to order any I know everybody has an Amazon account I know he's all do and you order a lot from Amazon, can you please go to my website, www.truthchat.com. Go down to the bottom and order from there. You just click on, it takes you right back to your account. And in which case, if you order something, I make it 25 cents or a penny. I need $7,500 to get new equipment, at least. And I do have a GoFundMe page, not that anybody cares. I do. So far, I got super... You can make a donation on any one of the podcasts that you're listening to or watching to on YouTube, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Anyway, enough all that stuff. In the meantime, it's hot down here. It's 87 degrees today. There's really nothing new. I'm not going to talk about politics today because I don't want to. 
I would like people to give me some suggestions on what they would like me to talk about. Everything about abortions, whether it's the price of food, whether it's the price of gas, whether it's the moon is still being in the sky, hanging out for a while, or anything at all except abortion politics. But when you do ask me, please leave it on my website and I will respond to everybody. Or if you can reach me at my email, which is just as good, it's Joe Oriani podcast at yahoo.com. And again, I do respond to everybody. That's weird because I'm watching me talk and my lips are moving and it's a delayed reaction. What am I, a five second, seven second delay? Anyway, I will try not to curse today. But anyway, as I said, this is a special month for me, 1983. But let's begin a little bit before that. And I'm going to tell you a story. And what I'm going to do is actually give you an AA meeting or something I would say at an AA meeting. I may not get all of it, but I will get some of it that's on highlights and lowlifes. Because it's very important sometimes that I do this because I need to remember what kind of person I was, what kind of person I tried to become, and what kind of person I truly am. But sometimes other than the drinking, I can't really see the difference. But it has been a long, long hard journey. Long time ago, somebody said to me, all you got to do is just quit. Just a little bit of willpower. And I always felt that if, if I had willpower, I would put it in a box and sell it. There's no such thing. I just, it was, alcoholism is a disease. It's a certified disease. It's not something I make up. It's an emotional, mental disease. Physical disease causes all kinds of problems. And drugs, of course, goes along with it any kind of drugs. Now, before I tell you what I did, I will tell you what kind of drugs I did. I almost OD'd on mescaline one night. I took seven hits, a lot of cocaine. I took what they call these gorilla pills. I forget what they were because my brother told me a whole one from my brother, Pat. And I ate it and he told me not to. And then he came over to me, he said, with my pill, I said to him, shut up or I'll stuff you into a freaking Coke bottle. He knew I took it. So anyway, there was that, and of course I smoked some pot, but smoking pot always ruined my drinking, just the way it goes. I didn't like it. But I did anything, get my, I did 10, 10, 10 cc's of Valium one day, and I was drinking, and I decided to get an egg salad sandwich, which was dry while I was sitting at the bar, and of course I almost choked to death. But death again wasn't something I feared. It wasn't something I gave much thought about because I encountered that quite a bit. I acted pretty stupid on a lot of things I did. They say the only things that like drunks or animals and kids is because they don't know any better. All right, so let's go back to the beginning. I'm going to start off this just like I would at AA meeting. My name is Joe, and I'm an alcoholic and drug addict. I started drinking at an early age. We used to go to the parades in Newark, New Jersey, and my grandfather would sneak us out these little bottles of beer. I don't know how many ounces they were, just to keep us quiet, so we didn't tell grandma where we were. We went to my grandmother's house. I'd sip some wine mixed with 7-Up. That was always good. But as I got older, I always thought if I drank wine, I hit my bottom. That was so wrong. Not so wrong about many things back then. I used to drink all the time, and I remember the time my father... Found that I was drinking, and I think I was about 16. He's sitting home, he's sitting there drunk. He said, you drink, you're going to drink in the house. So he put up a drink in front of me, and down the drinks went. Easy peasy. 
at that point, I always thought in my life I was going to be a fish. I wasn't getting too much trouble then because I thought I could still control it. I joined the service at 17. Of course, they have drink, drink. It's all you do because you're bored. I remember the first time I got the weekend off in basic training. I went out and I got drunk. I don't know how I got back to the base. The next night I had guard duty and I think I fell asleep and people were pretty pissed off. Yeah, you'll get over it. I always think that at some point in my life, I decided or thought that I didn't trust other people. I didn't like other people. I treated people like paper cup. I was squishing up and throw it away. No such thing as friends unless you were drinking. I was stationed in Fort Rock, Alabama. I'll never forget this. And everything I'm about to tell you is the truth. The truth to help me, God, because I have no reason to lie because I'm talking to myself and myself knows what I'm lying. I was stationed in Fort Rucker, Alabama. I was studying to be a something to do with flying helicopters or aviation or something. I was failing anyway. And we had an NCO club, or EM club. We went over to drink. And it was a big field. And on the other side of the field was the barracks. So I'm sitting down, we go in. They had tequila, 10 cents a shot. It was happy hour. So I had four bucks and I ordered 40 shots. And I got 40 shots on the table, mind you. And I'm drinking, I'm drinking. And I'm watching my friends who were from down the south, some of them were Mexicans, and they kept getting up and they're staggering and staggering. I'm like, what is wrong with you people? Who do you like this stuff? They just kept staring. I wonder how drunk they got. It seems that all of a sudden when I got up, I don't remember anything. But I was told I crawled, <laughs> I crawled across that field, somehow got to the barracks. Now there were a bunch of guys sitting around watching TV and stuff. And I guess in my state of mind, being totally out of it, I paid no attention. I had to go pee. And I peed on this guy's back. And the next day he told me, and I said, well, you know what? If you were going to hit me, you should have hit me then. I would have felt the damn thing. I didn't care. I wasn't embarrassed. I wasn't ashamed of what I did. Anytime I went out to drink, I didn't say I was going out to drink. I was going out to get drunk. There was no in-between. No, nothing. No, absolutely nothing. I hadn't started to do drugs at that point yet, but then I decided to re-enlist and go to Japan. And Japan was interesting. There's a lot of funny stories there. I'm not going to get into too many. But I started drinking there quite a bit. Went over to the club, drank, went over to the club, drank. Yeah, this and that. And that. I took a, one time I took a train from the base to Tokyo and then took a cab back, walked in the front door, walked out the back door, and went back on a train to Tokyo and didn't pay the cab driver to say I got busted down the rank. I would tell you, my time in the Army, I went from E1 to E2 to E3 to E2 to E3 to E2 to E3 to E4 to E3 to E4. I could have been a general for God's sake. Anyway, I've done things like that when I was in Japan. One night we beat up somebody, and I don't even know what the reason was. I just remember I was stomping on his face with my boot, and he pointed us out the next day. <laughs> and when he pointed us out, my hand was shaking. Because I couldn't remember, and I imagine what he said was absolutely true. Because Japan was a funny place. I remember I had a lot of friends in Japan, and most of them were all hookers, by the way. And I didn't pay for anything because they liked me to dance with them, and they give me money just to stay there. Sign them into the Stars and Stripes Club upstairs so they can get in. And that's all I had to do, and they give me money, drinks, and whatever.
I had met a, one lady, young lady, and I call them lady because they were my friends. And they treated me with respect, and I treated them with respect. And she owned a bar further up north, Tokyo. So she said to me, it was a Sunday night. She said, Joe, come on up. Okay, it's going to be a fun night. Get all the way up there, and I remember everybody in there was Japanese, and they were all buying this American asshole some drinks. And every time somebody buy me a drink, I go, come by. We drink it. I must come by myself to death. All I remember of it that particular night is she told me I had to go back to the base. And I remember saying, I don't want to go back. I don't want to go back. And I remember leaning forward towards her like that. And that's all I remember. My blackout happened at that point. It seems the Japanese police got a call that sometimes later somebody was walking around or on their hands and knees or something in a cow pasture. And when the Japanese police arrived, they said to me, what are you doing? I said, I'm looking for a cow. What do you think I'm doing? I mean, it's to say I got put in the Japanese jail and I got transferred down to the MPs and the MPs brought me back to base. The joke was, what are you going to do? What were you going to do, Joe, when you found them cows? Yeah, got no idea. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, of course, I got busted for that. But that was my life. Jumped out of a second-story window there because the guys were going to leave me because I was too drunk and I landed on top of the freaking car. Didn't break nothing because I was too drunk to break anything. Never caught a cold when I was drinking either. Anyway, I had gotten involved with some bad people when I was in Japan. They were the kind of people that would cut off your finger if you did something wrong or you had to feel sorry. I mean, being in movies was absolutely true. These people would cut your throat out and think nothing of it. And I got involved with them doing certain things that I shouldn't have done. They were talking to me about buying weapons, but I couldn't. I had access to nothing. I just pretended to be a big shot. And I knew at one point that I had to get the hell out of there. But I knew I couldn't think of a safest place on earth where I can go to. So the safest place on earth for me to go to, and my logic is really screwed up here, was Vietnam. That's how I volunteered to go to Vietnam. One year, three days, and I don't know, about 30 minutes. It was living hell. I'm not going to tell you what I did, but I will tell you some of the things I did when I was drinking. We had the town, it was on limits to 8 o'clock. I won't tell you about some of my other exploits there, because I don't want to embarrass anybody, especially myself. Because there was one woman there who was just absolutely... <laughs> Kept pulling me over, and she didn't. She was definitely she just wanted to have sex all the time. And one time, I tripped over a motorcycle because I was drunk. I had a cast on. I didn't get no medals for that one. Apparently, I got the Army Commendation Medal when I was in Vietnam. I don't know why. I'm not 100 percent sure. Another time, we took this. I took this roof down, going back to base. I had to get back, get some sleep. And some idiot, Viet Cong, took a shot at me. And I wasn't happy about it, and I had a drink in my hand. So me, I started chasing the guy down the alley. Yeah, two things wrong with that. One, I was chasing him down an alley. Two, I didn't have a gun. I left it back at the base. They kept it locked up. And three, I was really pissed that I spilled my drink. More than anything, that really pissed me off. So that was another stupid thing that I did. And I remember that.
I remember going along the roads. They say you don't stop and eat the sandwiches there or anyplace else off base. I remember having a sandwich that tasted like a subway. It was really good. I said to the guy, what is it? Apparently, it was dog meat. I had a second one. I was hungry. Then I started to get into drugs. I met people who were... I had a little refrigerator in my barracks when I was there. And I would sell beer at them, try to make some extra money. And if they wanted to keep the beer cold, there was a certain cost to it. And I started doing drugs. I started doing cocaine. It was like sitting in a chapel doing cocaine. (laughs) And getting up on the thing and there's nobody there and you're preaching to yourself. Thinking God's there with... Going over to... The medics at midnight, totally beat red. And they say, oh my God, you got sunburn. And I would say, doc, this just happened in the last 10 minutes. Apparently I had no idea what alcohol poisoning was. Mm-hmm. Didn't find out till later. I started doing that. All the friends I made were all into coke and drinking. And it was one big party time when we weren't working. When we were working, we took it serious because our lives were on the line. We did our best under the circumstances. And not that it mattered. I'll tell you some story. One time when I first got there, I was in a club, in a club on the base, and we heard incoming mortars. So everybody had Miller Light. I will never drink that again, even when I drank. Piss warm. That's all they had. And I remember getting up on the table. I was one of the last ones to leave because I was in no damn hurry. I think I had a death wish then. And I remember getting up and I turned around and looked at all the tables. Do you know everybody took their beer with them? There wasn't a drink left on the table. Maybe in a can or two, but that was about it. They weren't going into them buckets without them, which I found funny. You're driving down the road and you're two Viet Cong out in the middle of the field, higher than you are, setting up a mortar around. Going to blow you up that night. And the MPs are just looking at it like, oh, come on, guys, what is this? So that was all the fun things that we did. Now, I got out of Vietnam. I was a wreck. I was into drugs. I was drinking twice as much as ever. I was awful. I was awful, awful, awful. I'll admit that. I look back now and say, how the hell did you survive that? Why did you do them things? But again, I had no emotions, I had no feelings. Nothing. When I first got back home from Vietnam, the first thing I did, went to my mother, stayed there, and I said to my mom, I'm not getting out of bed unless there's a shot of whiskey on the table. Like seven o'clock in the morning. And there was a shot of whiskey on the table. It was the only way I could survive, the only way I could do things. I was a total wreck. If I heard a firecracker in the background, I'd jump underneath the car. My nerves would just rattle because of the job I did when I was in, in country. They sent me to... Oh, I don't know. Fort Knox, Kentucky. And when I was at Fort Knox, Kentucky, it was the dry county. So we sat to hitch a ride to go up to the nearest bar. One night, in particular, me and my friend, we hitch a ride up to the bar. We go to the bar, we get drunk. And we're coming back and we hitch a ride coming back. I should have realized there were four guys in the car. Common sense if you had any. One guy says... Okay, you get in the front in the middle, which I did. The other guy, my friend, got in the back in the middle. We're driving along. They pulled over. They put a knife to his throat. Tell him, give him his wallet. He gave him his wallet. They made him jump out. Now, we're driving along. I'm the only one in the car. It still didn't bother me in particular what they did. The guy goes to me, I want your wallet. He said, I don't have one. Actually, I did, but it was in my front pocket. 
He goes, you're going to get out. I said, wait a minute, wait a minute. You just robbed my friend. We are both drunk. The base is still a few miles away. At least you can do that. You got your money. Is drive me to the base. That's how stupid I was. Linus would say, of course, he didn't. Seen him same guys about a week later, and of course, we just busted him up. And about a month after that, we were in a bar one night. And Kentucky's a strange place. It's beautiful, but it's strange the people are. And I was in a bar, and I was leaning against a cigarette machine, okay? And behind it was a lower level where people were eating their dinner, and the bar was up here in the room. The guy walked in with his friends. He sees me. He walks over. He says, come on, you son of a bitch. We're going to go outside and fight. Well, as drunk as I was, I didn't feel like going anywhere. So I said to him, listen, if you're going to hit me, you hit me right now. I would never say that again. Because he hit me, and he hit me so hard, it was like in a movie. I'm flying over a couple tables, and the people's on the table, and they have food. But that's something I learned. Never say, ask somebody to hit you, because they actually might do it. If it wasn't so sad and disgraceful, it would actually make a good comedy scene. But I've seen them make movies like that before. So I would never do that again. I wasn't a stuntman. Anyway, I decided that it was almost time to leave Kentucky. But I was still drinking too much, and I just had, I just, I couldn't take it. I couldn't get stupid-ass tanks, and I hate tanks. They're always so dirty, you gotta clean them. Nobody had any idea what I was doing. They said you can paint your barracks. So I painted it purple, my little section, pissed off the sergeant. I said, well, you said I could paint any color. But anyway, I got so mad because I felt like everybody was just against me. It got to a point where I was actually drinking Bloomsbury bomb wine dollar a bottle because I couldn't no money to go anywhere. And I'm like, this really sucks. So I decided to go AWOL. That's enough of this shit. I stayed AWOL for about six weeks. And then I thought about it and thought about it and thought about it. And I decided to turn myself in. When the MPs picked me up, the police, they brought me over to Rikers Island, handcuffed me, and I was handcuffed to a guy who had just committed accused of committing murder. Shit, this place ain't for me. So they decided to go ahead and put me into a halfway house in Patterson, New Jersey, Mount Carmelville, it's called. Now, I stayed there for 13 months. Clean, no drinking. You notice I didn't say the word sober, because I was not sober. I just wasn't drinking. And I always thought I had it under control. Then one night I went to stay at my mother's and I remember looking outside the window at the bar I used to hang out across the street. It's two o'clock in the morning, 10 after two, it's a big fight outside. And I'm saying to myself, look at this shit you're missing. What is wrong? You're missing all this. Over. So I left the rehab and went back to drinking. During that time I went down to Florida and there was a, the lady I was with, he had, her aunt had a problem with her boyfriend, and her boyfriend wanted to kill himself. And he has a gun. I didn't think the first time it happened with a gun, but he has a gun. And I walk in straight at him. He goes, I'm going to shoot you, and you're going to shoot me. There's something insane when you face somebody with a gun and think you're going to get away with it. Not once, I've done it a couple times. But I just walked into him, looked at him, and took the freaking gun away from him. No emotion, no expression, no anger, no fear. 
it was like my PTS where you don't where you do strange things that are daring and behaviors way off. And that was one of them. So I just took the gun away from the guy and walked away. Going back to New Jersey, I was hanging out in the bar again. And one day the guy said to me, I don't know where I was the night before because I was in a suit. And the guy said, I walked in the bar, they needed somebody to go canoeing with. Hey, cool, whitewater rafting. So I go up, I change clothes, I come back down, we go up to the Delaware, me and my friend Jerome, we get in the canoe, and off we go. We turn around, we see everybody tipping over, losing their beer and their pot. And me and Jerome go down for about a half hour down the river, and we find a rock, and we pull over there. And we're just sitting there relaxing, smoking a joint, drinking some beer, and doing a little coke. And here comes the other guys. And we were laughing because there was a supper wind. So me and Jerome get back in a canoe. We go maybe 20 feet off the rock and the canoe tips over. My foot, my right foot actually gets stuck underneath the rock. And the water's about coming over my head. And I yelled at Jerome. I said, Jerome, there's no time to tell you, but I can't effing swim. He's what? So I can't swim. Now, needless to say, I took my lost my shoes, got my foot loose, and managed to get out of that particular mess I was in. Because my father the next day said, well, "If I had known you were going to do that, I would have took insurance out on you." Thanks, Dad. Appreciate your help. My son Joey used to hang out the window, and his mother goes, "Hey, look, there goes your dad, the drunk." And I waved to him. That's the way it was then. That's the way always things would be. I started to work as a bartender in this particular bar. And if you ever seen the movie Gremlins, this bar was like the movie in the first Gremlins. It was a total friggin' zoo. Fights all over the place, people doing coke on the counter, all kinds of shit going on. And I was the chief head bottle washer. And I had to keep, I would go buy, do a line of coke, take some shots, drink a lot of peppermint stops, all day long, drink, drink. My drinking consisted of vodka and orange juice in the morning. I needed the orange juice for breakfast. Switch to beer, then switch back to vodka and orange juice, and then mix it with some shots. The only time it was really bad if I drank blackberry brandy because then I become nasty. My mother used to say I was a good drunk until I drank that. There's not as good a thing as a good drunk. So anyway, I got the job, and that person who owned half the bar was actually the supplier for cocaine. His name was Tony. He owned half the bar. Uh, he passed away a couple of years ago. Me and him got along pretty good because I would sell the stuff on the table. I rented the top floor of his house. We had two two family house. I rented the top floor. How convenient can you get? The detectives only had to sit outside one house all the time. Anyway, things in that bar were quite awful. There were fights all the time. People always wanted to go outside and break them. We had two wooden doors: one on the side, one on the front. They kept breaking the windows. So the owner, the other owner, Mike, he put up this thick, heavy wooden door. Okay, that's great. So one day I'm sitting there, and uh, and one of my customers come up to me and say, "Hey, Joe, you go down the other end." I say, "Yeah, I do." Why? He has a gun, and he's going to shoot you. Let me go, Jesus Christ! So I took a shot of peppermint snobs or whatever I was drinking. Walk and this guy was about six two, right here, really dumb bastard. But anyway, I said to him, "You have a gun? You're going to shoot me with?" He says, "Yeah." I said, "Okay, let me see it." How stupid as he was, he took it out. 
And as soon as he took it out, I took it off. I'm like, you're an idiot. So I took him by the collar of his shirt and the back of his pants. And I took him and I brought him up to the front. And I threw him out the front frigging door. The only problem was I forgot to open it. Man, I hurt him. Uh, I took his gun and I threw it over to a local reservoir, which we had. That was the second time somebody wanted to kill me and I didn't care. And there was some more along the way. Those were two very funny ones. Again, I didn't care. I had no emotions. I wasn't afraid of dying. I wasn't afraid of anything or anybody. I wasn't a badass because I hated the fight. And if I had to fight you, the first thing I'd do is kick you in the balls and step on your face. That was the easiest way. One, two, three, it's over. And I didn't fight fair. My brother Pat one time, and he was bigger than I was. Me and him, one time I flipped him over my side. So one day he's getting on my nerves. My mother and father had gone away and I was watching the house. And he says to me, let's go up to the park and we'll fight. I said, okay. Now Pat was the type of person, if he got hit over the head with a freaking barstool, it didn't face him at all. It was like a rustler. It didn't bother him. So I said to him, let's make sure we do it fair. Nobody starts punching until the other one, until we're ready. He said, yeah, no sucker punches. So we got up there, and I guess I was still drunk as normal. He threw the first punch without me even knowing it was coming. He hit me, but I didn't go down. And I could see the surprise in his eyes. I got on top of him and started beating the shit out of him. And finally he said, enough is enough is enough. And he said, nobody ever got up from a punch that he threw. Here you go. Lucky me. And I was getting that. The tension was gone. Everybody was fine until he stole some of my checks for his drugs because he was a drug addict. And unfortunately, he died from AIDS along with my sister. Along with my nephew committed suicide. My son died from Huntington. So, you know, all these deaths go along the way. Very sad, but life goes on, as I just told somebody 10 minutes ago. I think about the people I lost. But anyway, that's when I didn't have feelings. I didn't care. So I decided at one point to meet my wife. She came in a bar one day. She was dating my brother, Pat. At the time, she looked pretty good, and I was pretty horny. So I had a joint, and she liked to smoke pot. And I said to her, listen, where's Pat? I don't know. He's supposed to meet me here, but he's running late. And I was closing a bar up. I said, well, you know, you can come up to my place, and we can smoke the joint and whatever. One thing led to another. Next thing you know, I'm marrying her. My mother did not go to that wedding, which is probably good because they had so much coke at that wedding. It was unbelievable because the guy who's my coke dealer and friend is my best man. You can see a picture of me looking stoned to the max. There was coke all over the place. I go in the kitchen, have some, come back out. Go in the kitchen, have some. Jesus. And cocaine did not keep me from sleeping. Because when I wanted to go to sleep, I went to sleep. No matter what kind of pills I took. That's the night, a couple of nights later, that I took seven hits of mescaline. Guy kept saying, are you a cop? Nope. Why do you keep coming up here? Nope, I'm not a cop. Just my drugs. And I had, a, I remember yelling, my wife, ex-wife at the time, ex-wife, she kept, her and a friend had to walk me up and down because I was yelling, according to them, help me, please help me, because I was coming in and out of it. I was OD, and that's what they did. So I didn't have to go to the police or the hospital. Then one night in March, 1983, a lot of things have happened in between then. I told you, I didn't like people. I didn't trust people. I didn't care about people. I didn't care about nobody. I don't even think I cared about myself. 
I hated everything, everyone. It's everybody's fault. God abandoned me. All this bullshit that you go through, self-pity. I decided it was March, March of 83. I don't remember the exact date. Be a third, fourth, somewhere around there. A week before, let me get back to that. A week before I was walking in Hoboken, New Jersey, and I was high and drunk. And I remember seeing my grandmother, God rest her soul. She was a devout Catholic. Now, I was, I was a Catholic and I was a devout Catholic. And I remember her saying to me, I'm saying a novena for you. Now, people who don't know what a novena is, a novena is nine days of prayer for the helpless. She did it to St. Jude, who's a patron saint of the helpless or hopeless. Like, ah, that's good, Gramps. Keep praying, I need it. On the ninth day, I was sitting home with my ex-wife. We got into a fight. I remember I was drinking a 16-ounce cans of beer and drinking blackberry brandy, which really was a good mixture. And she got mad. She says, I'm going to go to my girlfriend's house. Get the hell out of here. I don't give a shit. And one of the things I would tell you in my past, I always loved snow. It's pretty, much too many movies. But I remember saying to myself, you know what? My job sucks. I'm having trouble with this. Life is bad. Nobody's treating me well. Nobody likes me. Nobody cares about me. You know what? Screw all of you. I'm just going to kill myself. And then the next day, everything will be fine because you'll feel so sorry for me. So anyway, I did that. And I drank more and I said, this is enough. I went into the kitchen, looked for something I would kill myself with and I couldn't find it. Oh, I found the electric knife. I took the electric knife inside. Oh, I guess it was about eight o'clock at night. Took the electric knife, put it to my wrist. There's some scars here from other suicide attempts. But I pulled my, guess what? I forgot to plug the damn thing in. I'm like, you know what? This is all screwed up to hell. So I decided at that point I needed some help because if I can't kill myself right, there's nothing I can do right. Even I was a losing battle against myself. So I walked down to the Christ Hospital, which was a few blocks away from where I was living. And I remember I had my Blackberry brandy with me. And so I started to walk. It started to snow, light snow flurries. And it put me in a pretty good mood. But when I reached the hospital, they made me take away my blackberry brandy, and I felt like I was losing my best friend. I got rid of the brandy. They put me in a psych ward for about a week. While I was in there, funny thing happened to me on the way to the psych ward. While I was in there, the drug dealer calls me up, Tony. He gets me on the phone. I had payphone back then. And he says, what the hell are you doing in a psych ward? What are you, crazy? And I'm thinking to myself, that's a hell of a statement. I'm in a psych ward. Do you think I'm crazy? I'm like, Tony, I just need to get my head cleared, blah, blah, blah. Then I'll be out soon. But while I was there, they brought in people from AA, St. Nick's group, St. Nicholas in New Jersey, and called the last stop group, the last call group. And I remember them talking. They sound like me, but I'm not sure. Meantime, my ex-wife was still drinking and doing her drugs. So when I got out, I went to a meeting that Saturday night. Now I'm thinking to myself, I'm just going to do this till I get everything cleared out and everybody's happy that I'm sober, blah, blah, blah. And 
things would be good. This wasn't going to be a permanent thing. No, sir, not for me. Oh, anyway, I listened that Saturday night. I went back again the following Saturday, and I met my sponsor, Tommy. Tommy is one of them people from New Jersey who is rough, tough, or was rough, tough, because he's passed now, and he took no prisoners. I asked him if he'd be my sponsor, and he said to me, sure. He said, but the first thing you're going to do is sit down and shut up. I said, well, okay. Tommy picked me up as much as he could. Sometimes I go to three, four meetings a day, sometimes midnight meetings. It didn't matter how tired I was and what I was doing. Meeting after meeting after meeting after meeting. Finally, on my 90th day, he said, now, you can, before that, let me backtrack just a little bit. I was going to these meetings, and after a month, because they come up to my house after meeting, we have coffee. And my ex-wife would walk out, look at him, shake the head, pretend she was smart and light up a joint. After a month of that, she decided to go. And to her credit, it took My 90-day meeting, I never forget, my mother attended, and she was mad because I called her a control freak or something like that, because anytime we did something bad in our house, she'd wait till my father get drunk and tell him, knowing what the results would be, hands over the fire, beating that you wouldn't forget, all kinds of good stuff, because I'll never forget the time, he always put your hands over the jets if you thought you lied, and that's freaking burnt. And if you didn't lie, you better lie to tell the truth. You caught in a no-win situation. And I was the last kid he ever beat. It's very simple, losing $20 and telling him. The wind blew it when it actually got in my pants when I went to the bathroom, came back. He beat me so bad that I couldn't go to school for days. But that being said, that's what they called, they would call that child abuse now. Back then they called it normal because I'm not the only one with those issues. And issues they were. Especially when I became 17, I had to get away. I thought the grass was green on the other side. And it wasn't. Not by much. So anyway, I might need to meeting my mother's day. She got mad because I said something about her. And she was all upset. But that's just the way it goes. I wanted to be honest. And I started to go on A. I started to feel better. I remember Tommy telling me, you have to believe in a higher power. I said, bullshit. I said, there's no such thing as God, and if there is, he left me a long time ago. So what he made me do, he said, you see that chair over there? And, yeah, what about it, Tommy? He said, and that's your higher power. Are you crazy? He said, just do it. And after a while, I understood the process. So I believe in a higher power more than I did a God, which is actually the same, I guess, in a long one. I went to big book meetings. I learned all the steps. I practiced all the steps. Things went very well. I remember, I think it was my fifth year, we went down to Perth Amboy, New Jersey to speak. Now I haven't spoken in front of large groups. I speak in front of small groups. And I looked outside and there was this maybe five rows filling up with people. And then there was a curtain. And I said, Tommy, I don't want to speak. There's too many people out there. He goes, oh, come on, Joe. He said, that ain't that many. It'd be good for you. Fine. Now, while you're waiting to be called, you're usually sitting in the back listening to the other speaker. My name was called. I come out, and apparently they pulled the curtain back, and this place had over a 1,000 people in it. I almost had a damn heart attack. So I was not a public speaker, per se. I was very nervous about talking to people, but it just came out. It's probably one of my better ones. But as I got 
along a little bit. I learned to speak better. I learned to talk about my feelings. I learned to talk about how things were. I learned how to respect myself more than anybody else because that was the most important thing. And they say, if you don't like yourself, you don't like nobody. That is the honest truth. AA has been good to me. I don't do any drinking. I don't do any drugs. I'm not tempted. There are days, though, it, some days are harder than others. Like today, people think, well, you've been sober now for 40 years. How hard can it be to say no? It's a struggle every damn day. And just so you know, most recovering alcoholics do not get drunk at Christmas and New Year's, especially if they've been in a program a year or two. It's usually in March. You'll find out the psych wards are filled up because we try so hard and so aware of our surroundings and what we're doing during the holiday months that it's after that that we let go and just give up and not pay no attention. Well, I made it through the holidays. I can have one drink. But one drink would kill me. At one point during, of course, my drinking called career life, I suffered from alcohol poisoning. I was able to turn purple at spur of the moment. Nobody knew what that was, even local doctors. It took a long time for them to diagnose that. I could have died again. Hey, tender verb was fun. Look at this trick. <laughs> My face lights up. It was quite an interesting life. So I think I always think I lived three lives. One as a younger person in a bad environment. Two as an alcoholic and drug addict. And three as what I hope is truly myself. I learned lessons from it, but I learned that I am not a people pleaser. I don't do things because People want me to, or beg me to, or try to bully me into it. No, I am not a people pleaser. I do what I'm comfortable with, and I do what I want to do. Nobody can make me feel like I have to do something. And nobody can make me feel like, oh, if you don't do that, I'm going to feel so bad today. Tough shit. My sobriety is more important to me than any French, any wife, any kids, anything. Because without that, I'd be dead. I know myself, if I took a drink today, I would totally kill myself. It would be awful because I wouldn't stop. First of all, now I could afford it, the price of that crap. In 1998, I, seven, I quit smoking on top of it. It was probably a little harder, too. So it made my life good. But in the last 40 years, it is ups and downs. That's triumphs. Some things I can control, some things I can't. I say the serenity prayer a lot. God, grant me the serenity, except the things I cannot change the courage to change the things I can and the wisdom to know the difference. Now, I get very hyper, and then I have to take a deep breath and remember where I come from. I cannot allow my emotions to go absolutely crazy. But they do go a little crazy. I am human after all. But being sober, I thought I could never be around people who didn't drink. I'm like, what the hell fun is that? And I used to remember saying, if you don't drink, I don't trust you. But... I have learned is a world beyond living high and doing drugs. All the friends who were going to piss on my grave are all dead. There's nobody left standing stand in line. I let somebody the other day. Half of them went to jail. A lot of them died of AIDS. And a lot of them just died. Alcohol poisoning, living on the streets, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. There's still a couple around that are still kicking. But barely, those are the ones who had enough sense to stop. And just two or three that I know. 
But as a drug addict and alcoholic, we have bad habits. We don't just do something simple. When we do it, we jump all in, heads in, and we don't care. On top of that, the PTSD didn't help. I'm still being treated for that. And they say you do activities that uh, you just, no common sense. And I like to think I have some common sense. I have sponsored some people over the years that were doing well. I've lost track of them since I moved around quite a bit. Sponsoring people's it's good if they listen. They don't listen. You know, you got to what's more important, your sobriety or their sobriety. And sometimes it, it, it doesn't help. You talk to people who have issues. They just don't want to hear it. You know what? If you don't want to hear it, I can't help you. If you don't take my advice, I've been there, done that, I've done. I lived three damn different lives already. I'm not going to live a fourth. So that is just my point. And after 40 years, I'm probably really thrilled. I can tell. But anyway, no, I am glad I am sober. I'm glad everything worked out for a reason. I don't go to church a lot, but I still believe in a higher power. I'm probably more spiritual than most people listening to this. But I don't put my beliefs on somebody. If you don't believe in things, I'm not going to make you believe in anything. The only way I helped myself is when I finally admitted I had a problem. Really admitted. Oh, yeah, I have a quite carrying member of Alcoholics Anonymous, my mom used to say. I probably did. didn't have cards back then because it's anonymous. So anyway, here I am today. 40 years when I should have been dead, probably I always assumed it's 45. So all this extra time for me is just extra time. So am I afraid to die? No. I will die happy and I will die sober. Some people say, oh, I know I'm dying. I'm going to drink me. I didn't work this hard to get where I am now to go blow it on the last minute on this planet. So anyway, with that in mind, I'm going to wish myself a happy 40th. And I will try to add some music to this that's a little more upbeat. And I hope you enjoyed my little story because what I said is true. There's a lot I left out because I don't need to go into graphical details that people don't need to know. There's a bunch of other crap. I mean, like the time I was hitchhiking in Kentucky and I was with this woman I picked up in a bar and it's against the law to hitchhike. And the state trooper says to me, where are you going? I said, a hotel. He said, I'll take you there, but you know, you're not supposed to be doing this. I said, yeah, I know. He said, besides you're gonna regret it in the morning. And I just laughed at him. I regretted it in the morning. I think she was a dog. Anyway, with that, I'm gonna say goodbye. Turns red.